Grab your Bible. Last week I gave this analogy that uh, every time we read these scripture, it kind of feels like I'm just lobbing a grenade out on us and then like hit the dirt because just, I mean, it explodes, shrapnel everywhere. And I'm hoping that as we talk about this upside down kingdom, that as we read these things, that you are consistently uncomfortable. I hope that you look at the people around you and think, is this me? This is you. Like, you know, whatever. There's this tension and we recognize, man, we are all broken because Jesus' consistent message is that you are poor in spirit and you're missing it and you need me. You need Jesus to, uh, to fix this broken fundamental heart that you, this fundamentally broken heart you have. And so as we read these verses, there's a lot to cover here. There's a lot that could be said. Um, there's a lot that's taken out of context here to justify extreme passivism and, and political things. Man, we are going to try to strip all of that and say, what is Jesus actually talking about here? And how does it apply to us? Um, and so that's what we're going to be doing. Uh, but as you know, uh, every week when you think of Jesus, you should be thinking of? Kingdom. Kingdom. We got to do this every week. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to do it every week. I'm also going to learn how to write with chalk eventually. So forgive me. There it is. Um, so, oh, there's an in there. This is not getting better, is it? Um, so... You think of kingdom, right? And so here's, here's the thing about, it, it, should, it should upset you when someone talks about Jesus inappropriately. It should bother you when someone uh, says Jesus' name in vain because they're not just talking about your personal savior. They're talking about the entire kingdom, the entire worldview in which you hold to. Everything in your life, if you're a Christian, is becoming about a king and a kingdom. And so when someone says Jesus casually in a conversation, you shouldn't think, oh, that's the guy that I kind of believe in that did some cool things that died on the cross, you should be thinking of thy kingdom come, thy will be done. King Jesus. That's different than my personal Savior Jesus. King Jesus has all authority over everything. Sometimes we reduce this personal Savior Jesus into something that's just about you. We'll talk about that here in a minute with orbit and how all these things work. Um, last few weeks we've been talking about how Jesus came and he said, we're going to uh, he said, repent of the kingdom of heaven at hand. That's uh, Matthew 4, 17. Jesus is teaching about the kingdom. What does the kingdom look like? It looks like a place where we hear a lot of teachings about uh, divorce and marriage and singleness and adultery and lust and anger and murder and hatred and things that like are so relevant to us and we don't even know what to do with. And as we talk about them, we had a Sunday where we had to have the children leave. We had a Sunday where we talked about uh, all sorts of tensive because with singleness and, 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 and gay and all, all these things. It's tense and we're looking at it saying, man, Jesus actually did weigh in on the marriage debate. Jesus did weigh in on what it means to be male and female. And that doesn't mean that we use that to abuse other people. That means we use it to open our hands and say, we all need Jesus and we're all missing this. And none of us get to climb up on a high horse and say, I've figured out the kingdom. Anyone who stands up here and preaches to you, anyone you listen to that's all about you bringing the kingdom and you doing it and you getting motivated and, and just getting after it, missing it. Jesus brought the kingdom. And our response to Jesus is coming to him poor in spirit and saying, man, we got nothing. And we need you to do it. We need you to guide us. We need you to show us how we are parents in Christ, spouses in Christ, daughters in Christ, sons in Christ, children in Christ, uh, employees in Christ, state workers in Nurses in Christ, mothers in Christ, whatever it looks like, we need Jesus to guide those things. And so when we talk about Jesus, we talk about the kingdom. We have to. It's the only way we make sense of any of this. As we wrestle through 
these things. Last week we talked about being authentic, honest people, let your yes be yes, your no be no. And we talked about how we don't swear oaths, but in general we want to be the kind of people who are honest with each other. We want to be people who are true-faced, who are authentic. And we live in a culture where we spin everything. Everything spin. Man, I hope you were like me this last week and you just noticed all the spin in your life, all the times people are twisting truth, all the times you twist truth, the times you subtly spin things to get your way. You subtly spin things so that you can return whatever you need to return to Target or whatever. You know, we, just, we do these things so we can have the life we want. And Jesus says, this isn't what the kingdom's about. We're authentic people. But the reason we do this spinning is because of a scarcity mentality. You remember when I made you say scarcity mentality? Say it again, scarcity mentality. One more time. This is important because we're going to come back to this. Everything in Scripture comes back to the fact that we all have a scarcity mentality. We don't believe God will be enough. We don't believe the gospel. We don't believe that Jesus at all. The whole lot of evil is that you do like God. And so you constantly do these things. And when God says, no, here's 613 laws, we adulterate them, make them laws for ourselves to be perfect for our kingdoms. When Jesus comes and dies for us, we twist that to be about ourselves and how it's all about us obtaining his righteousness and us doing all these right things and us having to be good. And you need to come to church and follow these laws. And here's the fundamentals of faith. And we push all these things. We step on each other. Oh, well, you're not reformed. So squash. Oh, well, you're too Calvinistic. Squash. Oh, well, you're too Catholic. Squash. And this is what we do. We twist. It because we have a scarcity mentality. We don't want to believe that King Jesus is enough. We don't want to believe God's enough. We want it to be about us. And that constantly scares us because deep in your heart, deep in my heart, I know I'm not enough. I know I can't do it. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to struggle. And so we're living this constant scarcity mentality that the Lord won't really provide. And here comes Jesus telling us how to live in the kingdom. With those things in mind, Matthew 5 we're going to read it again. Open your Bibles. I'm going to read Matthew 5, 38 through 42 again, and then we're going to pray. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if he slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him take your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs of you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. God, I pray that you would let your, your word, your truth, bear its weight on us. That we would be authentic people who are honest with ourselves, who are honest with you about what we need, about our struggles. I pray your spirit would guide us to be thinking about our self-preservation, our personal come to you, Jesus, open-handed. Help us to make sense of what these verses mean in our personal lives and corporately as a church. May your kingdom come and your will be done. We have a, a natural instinct as humans um, to take care of ourselves, self-preservation, scientists and stuff would call it fight or flight. You guys have heard of this, right? Uh, there's some other things in there that our brains naturally do. But it, all, it makes sense that naturally if someone is going to kick you in the face with three-inch spikes on their foot that you're going to guard your face because you, well, it doesn't matter if there's three-inch spikes on their foot. Any, in general, don't get caught in the details. If someone's trying to kick you in the face, you're going to cover your face. If someone's going to punch you in the gut, you're going to flex your stomach and pull back, right? These are things that we do. Or if someone's running at you with an axe, you're going to run the other way, right? It's a natural thing for fight or flight. And even the toughest, most, like, you know, Spartan person in here, there's something that makes you fight or flight eventually, right? You know, oh, people kick me in the face all the time. I'm hardcore. That's fine. There's something that makes you fight or flight. That's how your brain's wired. Come at me, bro. Science. So anyway, so we've got this stuff going on. 
some of that's good, right? Because we don't want to be a whole group of people that just runs into tornadoes or runs into fire or some of you Missourians just like tornadoes. Wait, what? But you, we don't run into tornadoes. We don't run into fires. I understand there's firefighters looking at me now. Like in general though, that was a posture you had to gain. You don't just naturally run into fire, run into danger. Military people are trained to run into danger. They don't come out of the shoe just like, hey, let's go have bullets fly at us. It's a training they go through. We naturally fight or flight, and that's good. But in some ways, I think that when you think about the scarcity mentality as well, there's something about us that wants to preserve ourselves to our own end. And we talk about that a lot up here on Sundays because I think it's, it's kind of the root of everything that we struggle with. Uh, I think this scarcity mentality, you mentioned a second ago, when we chose to do our own thing, and, and you, you might not want to take blame for Adam and Eve's sin, and that's fine. You can take blame for your own sin. There are ways every day that you say, this isn't about God, this is about me. I'm going to do it my way. This isn't about loving my spouse, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to step on them. This isn't about loving and sacrificing my kids, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to step on them. And then you have to apologize, and then you feel guilt and shame and all these things, and you want to sew a suit of fig leaves and go hide, or you want to explain it away to where you're not really that bad. All these things go on. Because we have this scarcity mentality that God isn't enough and we need to hoard, protect, we need to fight self-preservation. This is so prevalent in our culture today. A lot of sociologists, people will talk about one of the marks of 21st century Western society or even 20th century is individualism, right? You guys familiar with individualism? Um, I can explain this in two ways. In both way, one way sounds really great, one way sounds terrible. Um, I'm not going to hit this too hard, but to some degree, you want to be an individual. You should be thinking about what dental plan is best for your family and best for you personally when you get a job. And it's cool that your job gives you a dental plan. Um, to some degree, that's important. The grandest scheme of things, though, if everything in your life is about you, and it is, because this is the, the West, man. This is, we are all raised in this. You can pretend like you're the most selfless person in the room, but you're not, because you were raised in a world in which everything is about you. And you were raised in a temptation where evil is constantly telling you that, hey, you need to be like God. And you were, you've been into an entire world of sin where you say, man, I want to take care of myself. I've got this scarcity mentality. I've got to protect. I've got to preserve. And so we have this individualism that says everything is about me and my life pursuits and what's best for me, what makes me happy. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's all about me. And this makes us feel free because we get to protect and we get to have our personal rights. We believe that freedom is protecting our personal rights. And that's what we're all going to celebrate today. And I don't, I'm not stepping on that. Don't come at me and say that I'm against 4th of July. I'm against patriotism. I'm not against nothing. I'm for King Jesus. So I'm not, I'm not here to talk about what we're doing on 4th of July. I'm just here to say this is what Scripture says. Okay? And so in general, we've been taught freedom is protecting our personal rights, and that is twisted into an individualistic mentality where everyone has their own ideas. It leads to loneliness, depression, anxiety, arrogance. You know this because these things are prevalent in our culture, and, and some of you have climbed above that because you've been fortunate enough that your life has worked out. But if the right things fall apart, your job doesn't work out, your marriage doesn't work out, your family dies, and you're sitting all alone, and all you have to hold on to is your individualism, then your life stinks. And it's your fault because you're an individual who's supposed to make your life right. And you can try to lean on anything else you want, but individualism ultimately leads to it all being about you. And the fortunate people who things go well for, then they can be really happy and pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The people who aren't fortunate, who aren't privileged, who aren't going through the good things, then they constantly wonder, why am I, why is my individualism not getting me far enough? I work hard, I try to do things, but then it's all on you. I think uh, a way to help 
uh, guys this, is uh, individualism falls on itself. You've got people, humans, they live in, in this realm, and then this person's got their orbit. This is their life. And this person over here has their orbit, and this is their life, right? And this is what I'm doing, and this person here has their orbit. And, and this is fine until you have this person whose personal orbit starts overlapping these people. And then they're bumping and colliding here. Do you see that? Uh, this, this person over here, they've got a real big orbit, a huge ego, right? And and this is where anxiety, depression, frustration comes in, or in general, just all sorts of disorder, disunity, chaos, frustration. This is why, uh, pick a political situation, pick a war in society, pick a struggle with whatever it be, racism, homosexuality, whatever thing that you prop up, abortion, the big deal. Why do we constantly see disorder, disunity, and chaos constantly breaking apart? First, because that's what evil wants. Evil wants to spin us all back into chaos. The very beginning of creation. God hovered over the waters and brought unity. Genesis 1.1. That's what he came and did. Evil wants to bring us back to that disorderly disunity and chaos. Wants to tear it all apart. God is trying to bring order and make things right. But when we live in individualism, we say, man, all these things are important to me. And we step on each other. We squash each other. We break things down. And we're constantly living in chaos. And eventually, individualism gives us comfortable some of this chaos. Well, you do you, and I'll do me. And whatever's comfortable for you is comfortable for me. And we make these little mantras to, to suffer through it. But ultimately, we're just disagreeing. And individualism breaks us down, and then we have this tension, because who knows what's right? Is this person's ideals right, or this person, or this person? And what about they collide here? These people disagree on how they should share their lunch break, and then they disagree, and they fall apart, and then all of lunch break gets messed up, whatever the issue is. Pick a family issue. My goodness. You guys are going to talk politics in your family gatherings today, right? You all argue about who's right. doesn't matter, because we're all individuals. There's no standard. You do you. Constant tension. What if, what if instead of being, uh, we're going to see if erasing works here, I'm not too good at chalkboards yet, but let's, what if instead of all these individuals, what if, what if there was just one God who created all things and all of us orbit him? What if, what if what Tajish in Uganda and Marco in Chile? What if all these people were connected to one God who created all things and all of us were connected? What if everything's connected? Whoa, sounds like a Disney movie. Hold on. Say everything's connected. I want this to be so ingrained in my kids' minds because so often... The big temptation of your life and my life is to believe things are disordered, broken apart, disconnected, and then it doesn't matter. We don't have responsibility. But if God created all things, and he is above all and through all and in all, if Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth, then it matters how you parent your kids, and it affects me. And it matters how you approach loving others, and it affects me. And it matters to you how I treat my wife, because we are all connected through a God who created us as image bearers. I'm not arguing for universalism or relativism here. I'm arguing there is one standard, and that's the Lord. And he showed us how to live through King Jesus. And when we have all this individualistic separation, then we have no way of following him. It doesn't make any sense because it's focused about us. It's about me. And Jesus answer, it comes in constantly. His teachings over and over say, ah, it's not about you because you're biffing this whole thing. You even took the law and messed it up. Jesus is saying, you have a heart problem. 
And so now he gives us very specific words about our heart problems. He wants to come and set us free. Not a freedom that has to do with our individualism. Not a freedom that says, this is what you think's right and you get to be set free to protect your personal rights and what you think. Jesus says, I'm gonna set you free from what's really capturing you. Yourself, your sin, your evil. The evil that's impressed upon you in the world. Jesus is setting us free from the tyrant of ourselves, our hearts, our broken nature, which causes all this disunity, this disorder and chaos. Jesus has come to set us free. Not by our efforts, gosh, by his spirit working in us. John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You will know the truth. If you abide in my word, whose word? Jesus' word. If you abide in that, it'll set you free. Jesus' words are the truth, and it'll set you free. When we read these hard things, and we try to make sense of what Jesus says over these hard words, we need to first understand that he is setting us free. This is what it looks like to live freely. This idea of one God who's above everything that we worship that's connected us all in his image to seek him for his glory first and our joy second. First his glory. Everything's about him. Not us as individuals. Not us as Memorial Church. All of us together as one body. That sets us free. Maybe you don't believe that. I mean, let's be fair. Maybe you hear that thing, ah, that's not like freedom. Don't you ever tell me how to live my life. I'll do what I want. How's that working for you? Maybe it's going great. I pray that it falls apart sooner than later because it will fall apart. And eventually you'll die and you'll have nothing to stand on because you can't take any of it with you. And you'll stand before the Lord and he'll say, did you know me? Did you follow me? Did you love me? I gave you every opportunity and you chose to do your own thing. Away from me. I never knew you. Jesus says, I'm the truth. Knowing my truth, following me, that will set you free. So as he deals with these hard, broken things in our culture, he deals with our hearts, and he talks about divorce, he talks about lust, he talks about anger, he talks about hate. Now he's got some other things to say. He wants to talk to us about our honor and pride, our possessions, and our time, our conveniences. With those things in mind, we're going to walk through Matthew 5, 38 through 42. Uh, James has a story for us, and then we'll close out. Jesus starts saying, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. He's quoting a pat, uh, he's, it's tough because you could, you could point to like five or six different passages Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament here. The main, uh, some people would say the main one would be Exodus 21, but there's Deuteronomy, there's Leviticus, there's several different places this idea of eye for an eye comes from. Uh, Exodus 21, 23 through 25 says, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That sounds rough. Do I mean, gosh, uh, you want to say, like, hey, do we actually live this way? And to some degree, you, you think, ah, no, we don't live this way. But actually, we kind of do because we love to sue each other and make all sorts of money and all these things. So it's, it's a tension. This is uh, one of the oldest laws in all cultures. It's uh, the law of retrib uh, retribution or lex talionis. Uh, it's a Latin phrase for the law of retribution. It's basically meant to end the cycle of revenge. We can read these and we place our, individual in, our individualism into it and think, oh gosh, what if I accidentally cut off my neighbor's foot? Now I'm going to lose my foot. And we try to create all these loopholes because that's what we do is we find them. The original point of this was not this harsh idea of, well, if you accidentally blink and your you know, neighbor spits in your eye and then you go blind, then you got to poke out their eye. The point was to end the idea of revenge. Because what happens is, in my heart, if someone pulls out in front of 
of me and endangers my family because they're driving ignorantly, then my first thought is, you might as well blow up because I value my family more than your life. And if I could just halo stick a grenade on your car and comically gone, yes, I've protected my family and rid the world of your idiot driving, right? Some of you are perfect drivers who are all patient and you can't relate to this at all. So. But we have those tensions. And so this idea of revenge was supposed to say, no, 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 eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. If someone steps on your foot, you can't go kill their daughters. That doesn't make sense, right? If someone steals your goat, you can't just go ahead and ravage their whole city and poke everyone in the throat till they quit breathing. That's absurd. And so the whole idea was to bring people together. It turned into a way... Uh, is ultimately a way to think about how other people's lives mattered. And then, again, think about a tribal society where everyone was connected. If one person lost their eye and then someone else had to lose their eye, everyone in the culture hurt from that in some way. Because now, let's, let's do foot for an example. If two people lost their feet and the farmer who provided grain for the city lost one of his feet, then now everyone's suffering to some degree and you all have to understand, man, we need each other. And not, taking revenge is actually a problem. And so we actually need to have some sort of laws for justice because otherwise we're all going to lose our feet and no one's going to be able to harvest grain. We don't have that sort of culture, and so we read these things, we get confused about that. Ultimately, this turned into a way to sue each other and get focused on what's owed to me, and they would turn these things and like, okay, well, a foot is actually worth this much money, and so how much would that be? Okay, so you owe me this, and it was just a big tension. And so Jesus steps in and says, hey, you've heard it said, 39, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Why? Because how we treat people matters especially those who are evil. I think it's interesting that Jesus is referring to our first step. Our first big step is, well, what about all the bad people? What about all the people who just, the people who are locked up, the people who are born with evil in their minds? And Jesus comes in and says, hold on, let's talk about that right from the beginning. Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. This is, let, <sighs> There's like this intense pacifism that gets argued through this, and, and we could dive into that a little bit later. But we need to understand what he's talking about here. Uh, you, you might have heard someone preach or talk about this sometime. They talk about, hey, people are mostly right-handed, so if they slap you with their right hand on the right cheek, then it must be a, you know, a backhand. I don't know about that. Okay, maybe, maybe not. I'm just saying what it says. Here's what I do know. It doesn't say something more intense. It specifically says slap. And the idea of slapping here is specifically about honor and shame. When you smack somebody in their culture, it is a way of saying that I am above you and I get to smack you to lower you. Um, man, there are so many analogies I can think of to, to connect with this, and I had all these movie references. We're just going to basically understand to skip all that, that uh, guys... Hear me out. If some guy comes to you and punches you in the face, that's one thing. If he looks at you and smacks you across the face, you want to rip his head off. There's something about a smack that is degrading and communicates, no, no, you don't, you don't smack me, right? There's something really frustrating. In a movie scene, if a woman gets really upset and smacks a man, all the tension changes. Like, whoa, what did he do that she needed to smack him? Smack means something dishonorable and frustrating. And particularly in their culture, if someone is smacking you, then they're communicating something about your honor to shame you, to lessen you, to dishonor you, to degrade you, right? This is not smacking you with a baseball bat in the face. This is not if someone shoots you in the heart, turn to them your lungs as well. That's not what it says. It says if someone smacks you. I think that this idea of being smacked on the right cheek, you know, that this isn't a life-threatening thing. If I asked Keith to come up here and smack me, no one would be thinking, I hope David survives. Keith's really strong. He's got a mohawk. 
Like, you know, no one's thinking that. Like, no one is worried that a smack is going to kill me. Not because I'm super awesome, just because smacks aren't life-threatening. This is, again, about pride, about honor. If someone dishonors you, and you do not retaliate, you communicate that your focus is on something greater than yourself, on your own injury. This isn't specifically speaking about civil disobedience or anything like that, but it's worth understanding that Jesus is saying, hold on, my disciples aren't focused on their honor. They're not focused on their shame. They're not taking these things to the bank to fight to defend themselves. They're not worried about their scarcity mentality. They acknowledge that the kingdom and what I'm calling them to is greater than being dishonored by others. And so to us, then the question is, how do you release your need to be the most important individual? How do you respond to the family member that's going to dishonor you at lunch today or dinner today? How do you respond to the people's Facebook messages that go against what you think? When other people's individualism clashes against yours, instead of creating disunity, disorder, and chaos, how are you creating unity and saying, you know what? I'm willing to be smacked. I'm willing to be stepped on because ultimately this doesn't matter. King Jesus is more important than this. If anyone would, say, uh, would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Tunics are like undergarments, uh, like base layer. Uh, those of you who care about like, keeping warm and hunting and all that, it's like your base layer, your, your first shirt, your underwear in some sense, right? Um, and so if they, they take your tunic, it says, let them have your cloak as well. The law of Moses actually said that uh, it wasn't permissible for someone to take your cloak. Uh, if they did take it, they must return. There's uh, a couple places in Scripture, in Deuteronomy and Levit Leviticus, says, hey, you've got to return. By nightfall, you've got to return the cloak, right? That's a big deal. You've got to get, give a man back his cloak. And Jesus is saying, hey, even the law that guards you having this cloak, nah, that's not, that's not important. If someone sues you to take your tune, give them your cloak as well. In light of the kingdom, your possessions are not the most important thing. We could camp out here and talk about this for a long time. But last year, we, we kind of emphasized this, and, and we keep talking about this open-handed posture and how all of us naturally, this is mine. I control this. We have this scarcity mentality that says, I need to protect. I need to hold on to it. And Jesus teaches us, you don't have anything. Everything belongs to the Lord because there's one God, and he's in control of everything. And we orbit him. We worship him. And in light of that, then why are you trying so hard to control your possessions, control your life? If someone needs something from you, why would you prevent them from having it? What's so important about protecting yourself and your scarcity mentality? I hear you going in your extremes in your mind. I hear you say, David, I can't give $2,000 to every person holding a sign in Jeff City. My bank account's zero now. Now my family starves. Thanks, David. Now I'm the one that has to hold the sign. I hear what you're saying. I get that. Okay? That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is simply calling out, these are personal examples, by the way. Very personal examples. We don't line 15 people up and smack them all at once. One-on-one, -on -one, smack to smack. That's how that happens. This idea of suing you for your tunic, your personal tunic, your personal cloak. This isn't about everything. This is a personal situation. Don't mince words with Jesus. Hear me say that. If you have a problem with this, don't come at me and say, well, what about this day? What about this day? Read what Jesus said. Wrestle with it. Open your hands and say, okay, Jesus, you're calling me to a posture that's uncomfortable for me. Let it be uncomfortable. I don't have an answer on how many thousands of dollars you need to give away today, tomorrow, this month. But I know in general that our culture is about me and taking care of me and my individualism and my self-preservation and my fight or flight and my individualism. 
And so when we read these words, it's going to make us uncomfortable. And so we have to teach about giving. We have to teach about sacrificial living because we don't naturally do it. Look at your bank account and tell me what's most important to you. What is the biggest value of your life? Everything here is not about the church getting more money. It's about serving a king and a kingdom. And God has set it up that we have a posture to where we can live open-handedly. We can give to each other. We can take care of each other. We can give to the church to say, man, I trust God that you're going to take care of us. And in a church this size, there's enough of us that struggle with this that we've got to talk about it. We've got to talk about having Ramsey classes. We've got to talk about what it means to not retaliate, what it means to not live in your scarcity mentality because you're going to think, I can't, I can't give to the church. I don't have enough money. It doesn't fit in my budget. It's uncomfortable. I can't help other people. This person needs help. I can't help them. Jesus says, no, no, no. You've got to live open-handedly. If someone asks you of this, you've got to give them more. Because your personal ideas on what the law protects you with, oh, i got to keep my cloak. Now, in the kingdom, we take care of each other. And people suing us, people taking from us, we trust Jesus with those things. I'm not saying if someone comes and plows into your truck this afternoon that you say, oops, I forgive you, you your insurance is covered. That's not what Jesus is saying. I'm saying that we need to hold all things open-handed to Jesus. Say, man, we're trying to figure this out, and Jesus is telling us to not retaliate to not deal with, with tooth for tooth, eye for eye, but even to go above and beyond and say we are going to show love because Jesus said the greatest thing is to love him and to love others. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Roman soldiers or officials, they, were, uh, they had the legal right to ask anyone to carry their stuff for a mile. And so they would carry it a mile outside of town, into town, whatever. And so it was, just, it was a common thing. When Jesus said this, for us, it's like, who's asking people to walk a mile? Some of you are like, you couldn't get me to walk a mile if you had 16 sleeves of Oreos. Like, I, $500 ain't getting, for, for me personally, all these people in my life are like, Dave, when are you going to run 5K? Listen, I do all kinds of fitness every week. You will not mark my words. You will not see your pastor sign up for a 5K. I don't care the cause. I hate it. I'm terrible at it. And running 5K is not worth my time. Come at me. I'm a terrible person. Terrible. Who does this? But in their culture, it was just known. Like, hey, Dave, you got, you got to do this. You got to walk 5K. It's not literally 5K, right? You got to walk this mile. And so it was punishable by law. They had to stop what they were doing. Think about the inconvenience. You're going about your day. Uh, come on, kids. We got to go to the temple to do our temple things or whatever. And it's like, you see him coming. That Roman soldier who's just like, <laughs> carrying his stuff. He's got, whatever. I don't know how this works. And he's got all this stuff. And he sees you. You make eye contact. And you're like, oh, kids, let's go this route. And say, so, oh, we, no, we can't. Hey, hey, are you? You come here. You, you can't get out of it. Your whole day's wrecked because now you've got to carry this Roman soldier's junk an extra mile. And Jesus is saying, wreck your day even more. Take it two miles. What an inconvenience. I had a friend once who used to say, convenience is rarely life-giving. I think that's a healthy phrase to remember. Convenience is rarely life-giving. We care so much about our convenience. We care so much about what we get out of things. We care so much about our time. Don't interrupt me. I got stuff to do. I'm busy. I am the worst in this room at this. 
man, we have such a discipline in my house of, I say we need to, I struggle with it, of I've got to have a transitional activity, I've got to stop. I literally, like, like Nikki will look at me and say, hey, go take five, because she knows, like, my mind, I'm just going, I'm going. You guys hear me up here, I'm talking 50 miles an hour up here, I'm flying, like, everything's going. I've already got planned out while I'm talking here what we're doing this afternoon, things I need to pack to go to Springfield. Like, my mind's just going. I can't stop this train. It's crazy. You interrupt that, I ain't got time for that. Right? Man, when I turned on my van this morning and I still had to get gas and I was going to be six minutes later than I intended, assumably, how long I was like, like my first response was, whose fault is this? Who should have filled up this van? Turns out, in my family, we all fill up the vehicles. It's not anyone's fault. It's probably my fault. I should fill it up. I drive the van, right? Inconvenience. And Jesus is talking here about going an extra mile. I think it's so important for us to stop and recognize when you're loving others, as Jesus called us to, it's inconvenient. It requires things that, that go above and beyond that we don't expect. It's not an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth orbit that everything comes back to me. It looks like me walking an extra mile above and beyond. If someone asks you to do something and you do above and beyond what they expect of you, if your job is to do X, Y, Z and you do the whole alphabet for them, then all of a sudden you're communicating that you serve something greater than them. You have a greater orbit than what they think you do. And that communicates Jesus and his kingdom. That's why the Bible tells us everything you do, do as if you're serving the Lord. How do you sacrifice your time and your convenience for others in the kingdom? That's why Jesus later on is going to go on to say, love your enemy. Even those who are difficult, we're going to talk about that next week. But all these things are difficult. How do you, allowing your time, your money, your convenience, how are you opening these things up and saying, man, I care about loving the Lord and loving others? This is what we keep coming back to. Jesus said, all of the law hinges on these. Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is what this is all about. These are all ways to love your neighbor. 42, give to the one who begs you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. All this raises tension, uh, tension with passivism, how we approach these things. I've already alluded to certain situations. These are all personal situations that Jesus calls out. And I wish that I could tell you all the line of, you know, if I were to tell you a story about how someone hit my car and I chose to pay all of it and not have it hit their insurance, some of us as Christians would be like, man, that was a really great thing you did, David. How loving. That must have been just like Jesus. And some of you who know my finances would be like, that was a really stupid thing you did, David. You can't afford that. Like, you're trying to get out of debt. What are you doing? That's why you have insurance. And we'd all argue back and forth. And then we'd all pick and choose these verses. These are personal parameters to seek loving others as ourselves. That's the best I got for you. And we come to Jesus to try to make sense of these. Jesus isn't trying to give us every nitpicky situation. Similar when we're talking about divorce. Jesus is saying, here's the standard, man. Here's what we're shooting after. And we're all poor in spirit. We're all broken. If someone comes into our church with a gun, and they just start doing that tragic thing that we've heard stories about, and all of us just laid down our lives, and then later on we all had this big forgiveness for the person, and that person came to know Christ and all of that, then we would say, man, that must have been what God wanted for all of us to die. But then if someone comes in here, and one of us that, that has been uh, justifiably trusted to care, conceal and carry, and they pops that person before they can shoot everyone else, then whatever, and then we'd all say, we still want to forgive them, we feel bad about it, we're mourning, we go to their funeral, we'd all still say, man, to God be the glory. Thank God that we had someone here to protect us. And 
I get emotional about this because my generation argues about this so much. We, we would all fight about which way is the way to follow Jesus. Should we, should we protect our families when someone kicks down our door and tries to tie us up and throw us in the street and shoot us? Or should we let them do it because we read stories about missionaries do it? And in the West, in America, we say, well, yeah, conceal all your guns so people can come in and you can rocket launch them in the face. You can have every weapon you want. But then if you go to, as a foreign missionary, your whole family gets thrown out in the street and shot. And then we write books about them and read, oh, how faithful they are and how wonderful they are because they gave their life for the gospel. And we argue and we go back and forth and then it becomes about me. If someone comes into this church to hurt us and you stop them and it's all about you and your bravado and your machoism or your awesomeness because you're a female who can shoot straight or whatever it is and it's about you, then we've already missed it. Because what Jesus is saying is this is about a king and a kingdom and about loving others. And so I think sometimes you can certainly protect other people by loving them. I don't think Jesus is trying to comment on all these huge societal issues about people with guns, passivism. This is certainly not about if your spouse is abusing you. I feel the need to call this out because it's so important. If you're being abused by a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, a parent, if someone's abusing you in some way, physically, sexually, emotionally, it is not loving them to let them do that to you. Love them enough to stop it. Come talk to me. Come talk to anyone in our church because you don't need to be abused. That's not what God created you for. And God didn't create the abuser to abuse you. You can stop that and we can help you. We're all broken at heart. We're all poor in spirit. And we're going to mess this thing up, guys. We're going to miss the mark. We're going to mess up whether or not we should shoot someone who comes in here with a gun. We're going to mess up when we should retaliate on Facebook to uphold the standings of God that I have on abortion or when I should keep quiet and shut up. We're going to mess it up. And the point isn't for you to carry it because it's not about you. The answer to all of these intricacies that we're going to argue about is to open your hands and say, I want to be like Jesus. And I want to let him control my inconveniences, my time, because it's not mine. I want him to control my money because it's not my money. My possessions because they're not my possessions. My pride, my honor, because it's not my pride, not my honor. It's about a king and a kingdom. I'm going to have James come up here and tell us a quick story um, that happened to him this week. I thought it was pretty helpful as I was wrestling through these scriptures that he, he had a story that happened this week that related to this, and you'll be excited to hear a story from someone other than me. But he's going to come and tell us a story. We're going to talk about it for, for a hot minute, and then we're going to close out. Check, test, here we go. So it wasn't this week. It was like back in May. But I told you the story this week. And let me just say this. I'm not here to say I'm a macho man or anything like that. So if that's what you're thinking at the end of this story, meet David in the parking lot. He'll take care of business for me. Because <laughs> that's not what this is about. What this is about, David and I were having breakfast Friday morning, and this bit of scripture is a struggle. It is. And like I told David in that moment of breakfast, it was, you know, when we struggle with these things, we come down to this fine line between mercy and justice. And our king is of both. He's the one that's got to figure it out, not me. And so it is hard. It is hard. It's hard to get individualism out of the way and be kingdom focused in it. And I think that path of mercy and justice and walking that fine line only comes with a relationship with Christ. And it's not in just one verse. 
It's not in just your favorite verse. It's in the whole book that's been given to us. So with that being said, um, back in May, we live in an RV. Uh, my wife's a travel nurse. Uh, my kids are beautiful, stinky teenagers. And, and I sweat profusely. So there's this thing that we do on a weekly basis called laundry. Anybody do that? But when you live in an RV, laundry's a little different. And I have grown to enjoy the adventure of going to the laundromat because every time you go, something awesome happens. Uh, and it's usually in the form of a conversation with somebody, doing something nice, something kind, helping a mom who's just at her wit's end with tons of laundry, or there's this guy there that doesn't know what to do. Or I mean, it's always something, and I just find myself being who I am, enjoying helping somebody, being a blessing to somebody. So here we are, and I, I get my laundry in the washing machine, and everything's good. I've drank too much coffee. i got to go to the restroom. So I go to the restroom. And as I come out of the restroom, there was a lady who had come in behind me, uh, not in the restroom, but to do laundry. And she, she puts her laundry in while I'm in the restroom. And as I come out of the restroom, she's kind of in a frenzy. And I notice kind of sitting off to the side, there's this come in sometime. I didn't see him come in. And there was something really strange about the look of this, this man, the look on his face, the look in his eyes. So anyway, she's mad. She thinks somebody stole her laundry bag. And she's complaining to the, the manager of the laundromat that I or this other gentleman had stolen her laundry bag. And she's kind of in a frenzy at this moment. And uh, I, I don't know her name, um, and God bless her, but in that moment, she was kind of a nut, okay? I'm just going to leave it at that. Is that okay? She's a nut? So <laughs> anyway, uh, I'm trying to calm this lady down, and I'm trying to figure out what she might have done with her laundry bag, walk through it with her. And I just simply made the comment, you know, it sounds like to me, I bet in putting all that laundry in the washing machines, I bet your bag got stuck in there with it. And that's okay, because it'll come out clean too, and it'll dry, and it'll be all right. Just left it at that. Well, she's still kind of going on and on and on about it. She's kind of in a frenzy. This other gentleman sitting over here, he's kind of in a moment of anger. He's furious. He's, by the moment, you can just feel the tensions grow. He's mad at her, I think, just in general because he felt accused. And there was a little bit of a racial tension taking place at the same time. And everybody's kind of on edge. It's real awkward. And I just kind of found myself, I just kind of come over and I just sat by him. And it's like, hey, man, you doing all right? Uh, what's going on? You doing laundry today? You know, and he's looking at me like, I'm not here to do laundry. And I'm like, well, what are you here for? Is this even real? I mean, he's just going, I mean, at this moment, I'm like, okay, something is wrong with this man. Long story short, the lady takes her laundry out to go to put it in the dryers. I've already put my laundry in the dryers. She finds her bag. She's really excited. I was right. She put it in there. <laughs> we all celebrated. But this gentleman just grew even more and more angry at this woman because she didn't say, I'm sorry is what it boiled down to. And he is just steaming. And talking to him, I find out he's hungry. So I ask him, would you like something to eat? Uh, let's go get you something, some breakfast. So I, he's like, well, I need my bag. Well, where's your bag? 
At this point, I'm just thinking, I gotta get this guy out of the laundromat. He's not here washing clothes, he's not doing anything. So it's kinda like that moment, we're looking for peace in the situation. Let's, you know, in my mind and, and reading the God's word, let's be a peacemaker, right? That's kinda what's going through. Let's get this guy out of here so these ladies can do their clothes. So I take him, I load him up in the truck, and we drive like to the east side of Jefferson City downtown area. I could drive right to it. I don't know the name of the street, but we find ourselves in this alley. He has this bag stashed. I'm like, okay, this is weird. And we get the bag, and, and he's like, okay, now I'd like to eat some breakfast. Sure, man, let me take you. So I take him to McDonald's. I give him a $20 bill. Uh, and the fr he gets out of the car. He's like, man, I just want to say... Uh, you're loved. All is good. Enjoy your breakfast. Have a blessed day. Can I pray for you? And at that moment, he just takes the $20 bill and he just sticks it in his mouth. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, this, now we've just went to a whole other level of weird. And I just kind of said a, a short little prayer for the man and goodbye and went back to the laundromat. And I got back over there and the lady who was uh, in a frenzy over the laundry, missing laundry bag was so thankful that I got him out of the laundromat that, you know, she felt safe now. And I was telling her that don't jump to conclusions, you know, it was a mistake. He was mad because you accused him of stealing a laundry bag. All is well. I sent him off to McDonald's. He's good to go. And as I'm saying this, I look out the windows and here he comes. And he's walking like a man ready to fight. And I, I, I used to roughhouse quite a bit. I understood what was about to happen. And at the, ho the whole time, I'm just thinking, I really don't want to do this today. And I look at the lady that manages the laundromat, and I said, now's a good time to get your phone out. Have 911 ready. I don't know what's about to happen, but I'm just going to try to get him out of here as peacefully as possible. So, all right. So, anyway, about this time, he comes in the door. And remember, mercy, justice, mercy, justice. When David asked me to share this, this is never what I intended. And this, that God just kind of put that on my heart. Mercy and justice, mercy and justice. So he comes in and he pulls out this $20 bill that I gave him and he just starts screaming. It's not real. It's not real. They won't take my $20 bill. It's not real. He's mad. He's angry. The guy's just shaking. And I just simply, I probably shouldn't have, but the first thing came out of my mouth well, did you have it in your mouth when you were in the store? Because COVID, I mean, people aren't going to take your money if you've had it in your mouth and they've seen that. Maybe put it in your pocket, go to another place and have breakfast. I don't know what the right thing to do here is. And as I'm trying to tell him this, this fist comes in the air and I see it coming. And I kind of stepped out of the way and I gracefully took his arm behind his back, took him to the ground. And I just sat on the man and began to pray for him. As I tell the lady at the laundromat, now's the time to hit the call button. And the police showed up and gave, you know, a statement and they, you know, witness reports, all that kind of stuff. It was an hour and a half late getting home and uh, just, you know, it was inconvenience. But it, in all mercy and justice, I don't think I got to finish my story the other morning with you. And I'm done. Like I am done. Uh, the next week I was back at the laundromat. The same lady, she brings her husband. We, I had no idea she would be there. She had no idea I would be there. She brought her husband because she wanted to feel safe, you know. Uh, and she walks in. She's very excited to see me. She introduces her husband to me. And this is the man that 
got the crazy guy out and saved me, this, that, and the other. There was another gentleman that came in with, the, with them, and he was a very interesting fellow, and he basically ended up sitting down next to me asking me if I knew who the Lord was. Started a conversation in the laundromat that led to the gospel. It was awesome. It was terrifying. It's mercy. It's justice. We learn to walk that line because it's a kingdom principle. James, uh, James doesn't want you to hear that story so that you think he's really awesome. And I don't want to... You, you all know who know me well enough. There's no heroes in church, man. We're, uh, we're all seeking Jesus together. The reason I wanted you to hear that story is I kept preparing this message. I thought, you know, if James, James could tell that story three or four different ways. If that story ended with him, giving the tw- him going to get the backpack for the guy, we'd say, look at that inconvenience that he took on for that guy, and he protected the people of the laundromat. What a great thing. If we were to say, uh, if the story ended with him giving the $20 bill and praying for the guy, and the guy shoving it in his mouth, and we'd say, man, that guy's a cuckoo clock, but thank God that James prayed for him and you know cool that God's working that way that story ended in you know a little bit of fisticuffs and a little bit of aggression and you know we could ride the line of extreme pacifism and say well you should have just taken the hit it literally says turn the other cheek why didn't you get punched and turn a punch no one hearing that story would say though man James was sinning he really messed up what Jesus said and later we see that someone got to hear the gospel out of all that here's the thing I want us to come back to this understanding that in all these situations, we don't know all the right answers always. The world's too challenging for that. But what we do have is these broad concepts that tell us we are to love other people. And that's going to require our time, our money, our energy. It's going to be inconvenient. It's going to be difficult. It's going to look like walking another mile. It's going to look like being dishonored and not retaliating. It's going to look like uh, people requiring more of you than you ever wanted to give. And before we take these extremes and say, oh, we've got to be good stewards, and I don't want to do this, let's just stop saying, no, no, no. We need to hold open handedly first say, are we obeying these things? Because I hear that story, and it makes sense to me about what Jesus is asking us to do. It makes sense that sometimes you have to protect other people in love, but sometimes you also need to sacrifice and pray for those who are being aggressive, who are being hurtful. And I thought that story was really helpful in us. At the end of the day, Jesus says he's come to fulfill the law. And Jesus says that he has fulfilled the law. The law says that you get justice equal to the punishment happening. And Jesus says, no, 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 that actually goes above that. You respond to whatever's happening to you above and beyond that. Whatever evil comes at you, whatever thing comes, you're willing to lay down your life for that. And Jesus talks about that several places. And the example we have for that is Jesus Christ. All of us deserve punishment and separation from God because we've created our own little orbits, our own little worlds. We sin, we spit in God's face, we do our own thing, and we should be separate from God. But God says, not only am I going to take your punishment for you, but I'm also going to give you eternal life. I'm going to give you a right standing with God. I'm going to give you an inheritance. Now all of a sudden these verses start making a little more sense when we look at the life of Jesus and the ramifications of his death and what he offers us. It's so beautiful that James decided to talk about mercy and justice. God does justice through mercy. You have to remember that. And so often when we're trying to think about our justice, our freedom, protecting our rights, we miss that when we want to make sense of love, grace, mercy, and justice, it looks like a broken Savior on a cross who took on all of our sin, complete justice, complete love, complete mercy, complete grace, all in one.
And that's what Jesus is calling us to. The last thing I want to say before we pray is that this is everyday life, guys. This is what Jesus is talking about, and it should be uncomfortable. I hope that as we talk about this, your mind's racing with, what about this? How about this? I don't know how to do this. I don't like this aunt that I'm going to see this afternoon. I can't stand when my husband does this. What about these people on the street with money? What are we going to do about the homeless? And we just go round and round. I hope that you're uncomfortable with it. Because what we need to do is be uncomfortable with the fact that we can't make sense of this. We don't understand it because we have broken hearts. Church, we have broken hearts. We need to come to Jesus open-handedly and say, man, we want to understand how to trust you with our money, with our possessions, with our time, because we don't have any of it. It's actually all yours. And at any moment, God could take it all. He could say, hey, it's, it's it. And you walk into eternity. And you're either seen as fully made right by him through Jesus Christ because you've given your life to him, or you're seen as someone God never knew. And then you're separated for eternal punishment. So as we walk into a time of response right now, as the band comes and starts playing the response song, uh, you've got some things you can do. You can respond by worshiping God and thanking him. Say, thank you, God, that you have given me a right heart and help me, God, to worship you and to love others if you've called me in these uncomfortable ways that inconvenience me and require my time, money, possessions, my honor. Put it all on the line for you. Maybe that's your response. Maybe your response is God's laying something in mind right now. As you hear this, you're like, I, I don't want to keep thinking about this person. I don't want to deal with this. I don't want to. And this, you been on this the whole time. We've talked about forgiveness. We've talked about lust. We've talked about divorce. All these things just keep weighing on you. You say, man, maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe these things don't make sense to you and they make you mad and they make you aggressive because you don't know Jesus. Thank God that he's given you this time. Give your life to him. Come talk to me. We'll pray about it. Shoot us a message on Facebook. We'll talk about it. We'll talk about what it means to give your life to Jesus. Maybe you just need to open your hands like we do every week and say, man, what does it look like? to trust you with my time, my money, my possessions, everything. Because it's not mine, it's yours, Lord. Everything's for your glory. Galatians 5, 13 through 15 says, You were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. That comes from Matthew 22. Jesus said that. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you'll be consumed by one another. God, I pray that you'd guide this response time. Thank you, for, uh, thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for the Cox family being here. Thank you for your word. Uh, there's so much struggle that we go through trying to love each other. I pray that your word would bear its weight in us and that we'd remember these ideas of turning the other cheek, of, of giving up our, our possessions, of going the extra mile, that they wouldn't just be cute ideas that Christians do, but they would be ways that we serve you as our king, as we live in your kingdom, that we take on these postures. God, I pray you change our heart. May the power of your spirit move and convict us now as we worship you, as we respond, and if we need to ask for forgiveness, if we need to give our lives to you, if we need to seek you in any way. God, I pray that you would give us an open-handed posture. All is yours. We trust you.